Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13 is where we are this morning. Luke 13. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, we are going to be looking this morning at verses 10 through 21. And as you're getting settled, I'm just going to read the text. You can listen along as I read here. Luke says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And, what, and, and, shall what I comp- and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Let's just pray before we begin. Father, we now gather in to just hear your word, to be taught. To let it shape the way we think and the way we feel and the way we act. I pray, Lord, that this would do this for us today, that it would cause us to sing your praises all the more. Father, I, I, I know today is a day that, that we come in here, some battling colds, many are at home sick, There's many things going on, joys and tragedies and stresses and trials. And, and Lord, I just pray now that as we come before your word that we might see the glory of Jesus and find our rest in him today. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us and that we might walk out of here encouraged and emboldened just to live and to walk in the gospel. Thank you, God, for the privilege we have to be instructed by your word. And Lord, we just want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I pray that would happen to your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been engaged in the study of Luke for some time now. I've had a couple conversations in the past couple weeks that have led me to believe it's probably a good thing to take a moment to remind ourselves what the gospel of Luke is about. We've spent some time here so long that sometimes we can just kind of move from story to story to story and, and miss the overarching purpose of the book. So what I want to do is I want to just take a moment and and just take... Uh, uh, probably two or three or five minutes and just to unpack what is the purpose of this book and, and how do we understand all of these stories 
and, and what's kind of the driving force behind this book. Because every book of the Bible has some themes that underlie it, that help kind of understand why things are there, why things are said the way they're said. And so I want to just make sure we, we catch those. Now, the Gospel of Luke is a wonderful gospel because it does one thing really well. What it does is it shows us with certainty the nature, the full nature of who Jesus is. There's an element of, of, when I talk about who Jesus is, I'm talking about his nature, his purpose, his reason for coming, his power, his authority, everything. And what Luke is doing is Luke is trying to to take uh, Theophilus, the man that he wrote this letter to, he's trying to take him from, from what he knows about Jesus to having that drive to a sense of certainty about Jesus. And that's a journey everybody has to go through, from, from knowing things about him to actually having those things become a source of certainty and confidence as you go into the world. Now, I want to illustrate this for you because, uh, so that you can see what I'm talking about because it can seem a bit nebulous talking about knowing to certainty. And I want to illustrate this from, uh, to you with a story of the life of Jesus. It's actually recorded, you don't have to turn there, but it's recorded in John chapter 11. But here's the account. Jesus is making his way down to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. They know lots of things about him, but yet they don't have certainty about him yet. The certainty is still kind of hanging there. And an incident happened in John 11 that, 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 that shows the need for this. Here's what's going on. He's, he's still north of Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. Uh, somebody comes up and tells him, Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus is one of Jesus' best friends, if you want to say that that way. The Gospel of John makes it clear often, many times, that Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they keep referencing this. He loved them. He loved them. He loved them. And what he's saying is that they're not saying that, that, that he loved them. He didn't love anyone else in the world. What he's talking about is from the human side of Jesus, these were his friends. These were the people he hung out with. In terms of just his social sphere. And so he hears that his friend Lazarus is dying. The text tells us he loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. So now this, this, this word comes up. And Jesus then says to his disciples. This illness does not lead to death. But it's so that I would be glorified. That's what he says to his disciples. Then the text says that he waited two more days. But that he loved them. He loved Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. So that John would say, you know, why did he wait two days? Was he trying to kill Lazarus? You know, did he not like him? What's the issue here? But he waited two days. Then he says, after waiting two days, tells his disciples, boys, we've got to go down now. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they lived close to Jerusalem. This is the thing that pulls Jesus to the final step to get into Jerusalem. Now, the disciples know one thing. They know that waiting in Jerusalem are a bunch of angry Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. In fact, they want to kill Jesus and everyone knows it. So Jesus says, let's go down. His disciples say to him, no, they will kill you. And Jesus says, but my friend Lazarus is asleep. And they say, you can figure out what they're going to say, right? He'll wake up, right? If he's asleep, 
He'll wake up. And so Jesus says, oh, maybe he didn't say that, but, you know. And so Jesus says, Lazarus has died. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And I'm glad he's dead. I'm glad he's dead so that you would believe me. Okay, what's going on here? They know lots of things about Jesus, but they are not trusting in him. They don't have certainty into who he is yet. So he goes down. Well, the Thomas, right? Poor Thomas. I'm sure Thomas was a great guy. But the only time you have him recorded right saying anything, it's usually bad. You know, like of all the press written, when Thomas opens his mouth, it's usually not good. So Thomas opens his mouth and he says, well... I guess we'll all go die in Jerusalem. That's his answer. And so, right, he's like, he just doubts everything, right? He's like, no. And so they get down there. Mary and Martha are there. Of course, Martha runs out and meets Jesus. And, uh, and she says to him, Ah, oh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. Great theology, right? Right? She knows you have the power to heal him. And you also, whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. So he says, your brother will rise. What does she say? Oh, I know that. We're all going to rise on the last day. Okay? A little disconnect there, right? She believes right theology. Whatever you say, God will give you. He says, your brother will rise. And she says, well, I know that. On the last day, we'll all rise. And then Jesus says this. And here's the key to this, why I'm going down this whole story for you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, why does he say that? What's he getting at? He's saying, listen, let me illustrate it. I have the ability to teach. I can open up the Bible and I can stand up here and I can talk for 45 minutes. Non-stop. I can do it at the dinner table. I can do it anywhere, right? Just get me going. I don't know periods, man. I just keep talking. Comma, comma, comma. Just words fly, right? But because I can teach doesn't mean I am the truth. I have no truth. I can just tell you what the truth says. Jesus can heal, right? But it isn't that he has the ability to heal. It's that he is life. This is what they weren't clicking with. He is life. Like, do you understand that life, the whole essence of life, all the breathing, all the everything that goes on has actually emanated from me. I'm the source of life. I'm the one that actually will get in and raise people from the dead. You see, you're talking about the resurrection on the last day. Where is the power of the resurrection of the last day? Where does it come from? Is this just something that's going to happen? It actually comes from me. I'm the resurrection and the life. So if you believe in me, he says, you'll have life. Now, he's not just saying, will you confess me? Will you admit that I exist? Will you say, oh, whatever you ask of God, you'll get? No. What he's saying is you have to believe that I am life. I possess it. It's embedded within me. Therefore, if I walk into a room and I want to cast life on this, I can put life anywhere. I can make life in these stones. Life is in me. She didn't catch that. The disciples didn't catch that. Disciples 
knew who Jesus was, but they didn't have the certainty about who he really is. They didn't catch it. Okay, now I'm telling you this story. Of course, we know Jesus then raises Lazarus from the dead and and a bunch of things happen. But here's the reason I'm telling you this story. There in that story, we see the fact that the disciples and Mary and Martha, they had to move from kind of knowing about Jesus to having certainty to who Jesus is. Once you have certainty to who he is, that's where all of life begins to start getting empowered and you have purpose and meaning and drive and confidence. All of the insecurities that we carry in the world are are connected to this one reality. It's an area where we're missing an, an understanding of who Jesus is. We're missing it. So, Luke writes this book for a reason. He writes this book... He says in, in, in verses one or chapter one, verses one through four, he writes this book that there would be certainty. In fact, notice what he says to uh, you can look there at Luke one, one to four. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning uh, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You know this stuff, but now I want you to... What does certainty mean? It means deep embedded confidence. So that you won't be like Thomas and say, well, okay, if you want to go, I'll go. I don't know what's going to happen. We're probably all going to die. Right? No certainty there. Oh yeah, we'll all rise on the last day. No certainty there. Missing that you're walking around with the one who is life. Not just one who can raise someone or heal someone. He possesses it. You should have no fear walking into you. You can't kill him. That's why he says, you actually can't kill me. I give it up. I possess all the power. Right? That's it. That's the whole story. So that's what Luke is about. And, and so, so I like to say this way. What do you learn from Luke? You learn three things. Here are the three things you learn. You learn who Jesus is. You learn why he came. Then you learn what that means and what the impact is for the world and for your life. Three simple things. Who he is, why he came, and the impact of it in 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 your life and in the world. So what we go, what we study, every time we're going through every account and every story, Luke is trying to tell us those three things. Here's who Jesus is. Here's why he came. Here's the impact of it. So that you would get it. And finally, by the time you get to the last chapter of the book, you would have certainty of who Jesus is, why he came, and what that means in your life. And for the world. So we're going to pick up our story here now in Luke 13. We have another account. Jesus is making his rest of the Gospel of Luke as Jesus walking down to Jerusalem and the events that are taking place as he goes from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as these events are unfolding, we're learning who he is, why he came, and what impact. So what I thought I would do for this particular story is I thought I would just use that as the outline. So we'll, we'll look at this account and we're going to see who Jesus is. We're going to see why he came. We're going to learn what this, this means for our life. And as we go through this account... What I'm praying that happens is that specifically in this account, as you see 
who Jesus is, why He came, and what it means, that you would see three things. One, His authority. One is His authority, which is what you need to catch. Jesus has authority over all things. Two, as we see why He came, that you would begin to see what I want to just simply call the heart of the kingdom. What what Jesus was accomplishing, His heart, His motive. I want you to see that. And third, I want you to see how Jesus is carrying out His mission in the world. How He's doing. And how He's using you in that process. So I want you to see those things as we go through it here. So let's, let's begin. We're going to look here uh, at this account. Jesus is in the synagogue, and it's a very interesting moment. In fact, this is the last recorded time that we have of Jesus teaching in a synagogue. I believe that this incident is what, what sparked the Pharisees to completely distance themselves from Jesus. So this is the last moment when he's teaching and, and what happens here. So now let's look at it here. Let's look at verse 10. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, here's our setting. Jesus is teaching. It's a Sabbath day. The way this would look, the way this would work, is that Jesus would be sitting... He'd actually be sitting down, a scroll would be in front of him, everyone else would be standing, and they'd all be standing kind of around him. People gathered on the Sabbath day at the synagogues. These were just local meeting houses. No sacrifices happened there. They would gather, they would gather to hear the word taught. And so Jesus is a rabbi, and so he's teaching. Now this is quite a a powerful moment. Men and women would have been separated in the synagogue, and a woman would have just learned quietly. She wouldn't have had a real prominent role in the synagogue. So, so Jesus is there. He's teaching. In comes a woman who's bent over. So she's like this. 18 years she's been walking around like this. Just can't imagine that. It'd be horrible, wouldn't it? 18 years walking like this. So she comes in. She's coming in to worship. And we don't really know why other than, you know, we're just assuming she's there to worship God. Here, here's word. She walks in. Jesus is sitting there. He sees her. And he calls her over. Now we know from the text she has two problems. A spiritual and a physical problem. She has a disabling spirit upon her. So she is oppressed by a demon. Not possessed, but oppressed. There's this demon upon her. And she, of course, has an orthopedic problem. Her spine is completely bent over. I can't imagine all of the subsidiary issues that would have come from being bent over like that. What other neck issues she'd have and feet issues. I mean, you could just, you know, ask Ted. He'll tell you about all the issues that she would have had, right? She would have had a whole litany of things, right? I mean, it wouldn't have just been her back. She would have just probably been in pain all the time without medications, right? There are types that we'd have today. So just horrible life for 18 years. So now let's look at what happens. So she has the spiritual issue and a physical issue. We got to catch both of those. 18 years. Everybody there would have known this has been going on for 18 years because they would have been a community. They would have known her, known her situation. And notice what happens. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, which is huge, to single her out in the synagogue. He called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. 
Could you imagine what that worship must have been like for her? You know, I mean, that just must have been out of the box, shouting, screaming. Who knows? I can't imagine what that must have been like. But, but this, I'm just picturing this moment. Jesus is sitting down and everyone's standing around and he sees her. And no doubt, because in that day, the, those that had disabilities were in the way back. They didn't allow them up front. There was, you know, they were just kind of outcasts. And so she would have no doubt been in the back and he would have said, come here. And I could just imagine the room must have been like, oh, can't believe he just did this. It would have been horrible. I mean, just, I, you know, stunned everybody. Okay, so she comes up and he says to her, be loose. That's the literal translation. Be loose. Be free. I think when he said that, he was removing the demon. And then it says he lays hands on her. Lays his hands on her. Which again, touching a woman in the synagogue. I mean, just incredible moment. Touches her and whoop, instantly straightened. And then she just starts to shout, whatever. She's just praising God. What a moment. Now, what do we see here in this moment? What, 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 would it, what, what, what do we see here? Well, in order to really comprehend this moment, I want to take a little side excursion here and explain to you a little bit about the synagogue. And just so you can understand how this story is going to unfold and, and what Jesus was doing, I want to place Jesus in his setting here for you. The synagogue, like I said, was a local meeting house. As they started... We've mentioned this in the past. They started during the Babylonian captivity when the temple was destroyed and, and, and people needed places to meet and worship. And so they created these synagogues, these, these meeting houses. And the people would gather together in the meeting houses and they would gather for fellowship and to sing and to hear the word preached. Now, you might not know this, but our church service is actually modeled after the synagogue model. When Paul would go out and he was the you know, evangelist going out to the Gentiles, he would find synagogues in these Gentile areas and he would meet. And oftentimes the synagogue was the gathering place for the people. And a lot of our church service, what we do is modeled after the synagogue. We meet, we, we fellowship together, we sing, you hear the instruction of the word, and then you go. And that's what they did in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was not run by a priest because uh, the priests were in the temple. And there was a division between the priests and the Pharisees. Pharisees didn't like the priests. They thought the priests were liberal because they had connected with the, with the government and all this stuff. And so, so they, they were seen as the liberal ones. And the Pharisees were considered the fundamentalists. And so they said, until we have a pure temple, we're not going to offer sacrifice in the temple. What we're going to do is we're just going to gather and hear the word taught. And so there was a sect called the Pharisees. And along with them were the scribes, or some translations call them the lawyers. And their job was to just write the Bible, you know, copy the Bible over and over and over again and learn all the rules. And they're the ones that wrote all the rules and all the traditions and stuff. Now, this synagogue was, was run by a group of what are, were called lay elders. It's a term. We, we've borrowed that term in the church. Lay elders. These were, these, were, these were men appointed to shepherd the people within the synagogue. They were not vocational. They didn't, they didn't earn a living from this. But one of the men was elected to be called the ruler of the synagogue. It's a great title, isn't it? Imagine if we had the ruler of Kishwaukee Bible Church. <laughs> right? You'd elect one of the guys. He's the ruler. He's in charge. And his job was to do two things. One was to, to make sure there was a rabbi each week ready to teach. He had to make sure the pulpit was filled. Two, to make sure everybody followed the law. 
right? They had 600 and some odd Sabbath laws or whatever they had to follow. And anytime people would leave their home and start walking into to a gathering place, there was fear that someone was going to violate a law somewhere. And so the ruler would walk around making sure everybody was in line. So this ruler picks Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He calls out a woman, brings her up front, heals, touches her, heals her. All kinds of things are happening. And this ruler is about ready to pop a cork. He just can't handle this. This is a bad moment. But what, why this conflict? What, what, what is the conflict that's driving this? Well, well I, want you to, I want to just put it really simple. Jesus is coming in, and he's basically saying three things at this moment. And he's saying three things to, these, to this ruler. The first thing he's, he's telling everybody, and especially the ruler, is, I have authority over the spiritual world. I tell that demon, be gone, and it is gone, right? We're not talking about a demon uh, that, that some, you know, struggle happened here, that the demon was having, going through some kind of big emotional struggle, like, no, I'm not going to leave. And Jesus says, but you must leave. And, but I'm not going to leave. But he just says, be loosed. Gone. He has authority over the spiritual world. Then he can lay hands on this woman, right? He can lay his hands on her. What can happen? Her whole body can become straight. And what is he saying? He has authority over the physical world. He has authority over the physical world. He can fix this. He can restore what has been made broken. He can restore the order back to the earth. He can conquer the evil one and he can restore. What's the third thing he's telling especially the ruler of the synagogue. The third thing he's telling them is, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that actually defines what the Sabbath is. See, who is Jesus? His authority over the spiritual world, over the physical world, over even the gathering of God's people. He is king. He has authority. He, hasn't, he doesn't have delegated authority like the ruler of the synagogue. He is the authority. You see, he says, be loosed, gone. He says, be healed, healed. He says, this is what we're doing on the Sabbath. This is what we're doing on the Sabbath. This is what it is. He is the authority. He hasn't been delegated with authority. He is it. That's what you have to catch. He is that authority. In one sense, we talk about struggles and battles and spiritual warfare, and those are all good terms. But remember this, Jesus and the devil are not peers. This is not a battle going on like this. This is a battle where Jesus goes, crush the head of the serpent, right? He is the authority. If you're not catching that about Jesus, you could go through life pretty timid. Right? You can go through life thinking, Jesus doesn't, well, you know, there's a battle going on. No! There's a battle that has been won. Jesus is the authority. He's the authority over the physical world. He's the authority over the spiritual world. He's the authority over everything. That's who Jesus is. That's why he rules the Sabbath. Now, we're going to get into why he came. Let's go to our second point. Why did he come? Let's unpack this together. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, catch this, right? Notice, let's go back. We'll make sure you catch the, the, uh, the cowardice, in my opinion, of the ruler. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed. He's mad at Jesus. 
said to who? The people. <laughs> He's going to talk to the people. He's not going to talk to Jesus. Right? I don't know. I don't think he had any courage. But that's my opinion. He says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's all her fault. If she hadn't come in here with her disease and disorder and spiritual issues, there wouldn't, the, the Sabbath wouldn't have been violated. You sick people, stay out when you're around Jesus. You, see, you know Jesus is going to heal you. You know, you know who this guy is. He sees a sick person and always on the Sabbath, he heals them. Stay away. I think that's what he's saying. He's chastising them. Right? You know, at least he is aware not to challenge Jesus to his face. You know, there'll be some good theology there, but that's probably it. But what's he saying? What's this ruler saying? Well, I want you to stop. What's his theology of the Sabbath? Now, we need to know his theology of the Sabbath because, because what we have to understand is two things, and I hope I don't lose you here. We have to understand his theology of the Sabbath because we need to know how it contrasts with Jesus' theology of the Sabbath. Now, why do we need to know Jesus' theology of the Sabbath? We need to know Jesus' theology of the Sabbath because in learning his theology of the Sabbath, we learn why he came to the world. That's why these miracles occur on the Sabbath. This is how Jesus is defining his mission. The Sabbath is the place where he's defining why he came. He's defining the purpose of the Messiah. So let's look at the contrast. Let's look at this guy's theology of the Sabbath. This guy's theology of the Sabbath is pretty simple. The point of the Sabbath is to work hard at not working. That's the point of the Sabbath. That's the end goal of it. The end goal of the Sabbath is don't work. God says don't work, rest on the Sabbath. Therefore, his end goal is don't work. Now, what we have to understand on, in any theological discussion is you have to realize that you need to know the end goal of whatever you believe. What do I mean by that? That sounds a bit nebulous. I don't want to lose you here with kind of philosophical words here. But, but, but let me try to explain this to you with an illustration. When I was a kid... I had a Sunday school teacher come up to me. I was walking into my Sunday school classroom, and I had my Bible. And on top of my Bible, I had a notebook. And I put my Bible and my notebook down on the table. Sunday school teacher says to me, oh, You can't do that! You're dishonoring the Word of God. No book should ever be on top of the Bible. The Bible has to be on top of every book, or you've dishonored the Word of God. Okay? So I quickly pull the book off, right, in fear of dishonoring the Word of God. Now, to this Sunday school teacher, when she hears that the Word of God is the Word of God, it's life, it's, you know, it's everything. When she reads Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and she reads all these verses that talk about the truth of the Word of God, her end goal is to actually think that this book as with a leather cover and a few thousand pages, has to be reverenced, the book. So the end of her theology of reverencing the Word of God is that this, as a unit, as a collection of pages, should be honored above all the other books in my bookshelf. And so it will always rest on top. It will always be the outside book I carry. Never 
will any other book ever be rested on top of it because I want to honor this book. Now the question is, all those Psalms and Proverbs that talk about the Word of God and honoring the Word of God, is their intent to get me to not place any other book on top of my Bible? Is that the intent? I think if you read through them, the intent of all those things would say, if you want to honor the Word of God, you will obey it. Right? You will say, I believe this, and I want it to order my life. So I believe that I could put another book on top of this book, top of this physical book here, and if I'm seeking to live and order my life by it, I've honored it. Even if it's at the bottom of a pile of books. Right? That's what I believe. See, what we always have to know is what is the intent behind this person? Behind this practice, behind this theology. This man had an intent. The purpose of the Sabbath was to work hard at not working. And therefore, if you are working hard at not working, you're honoring the Sabbath. But what was Jesus' intent on the Sabbath? How did he see the Sabbath? When he looked at this moment, how did he interpret the rest of God? Let's look at what he says in verse 15. What was his end goal? Verse 15, we learn it. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now he's yelling there, just to put that in perspective. He's, he's mad. You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, obviously, and notice the people, they rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. I mean, you could imagine them feeling the freedom from the law that was coming off their shoulders. So now you got more worship going on. You got this woman worshiping God, now you got the people worshiping God, and you got the religious leaders getting very angry with Jesus. Now, what's Jesus' logic going on here? His logic is this. You guys, on the Sabbath day, realize one thing. You own animals. And animals need to drink. And animals need to eat. And animals need to be cared for. That they need life. And they need things to sustain their life. And you don't see the sustaining of the life of a donkey as violating the Sabbath. I see a woman under spiritual oppression and physically deformed. And I want to give her life. I want to free her. I want her to enter into the rest of God. I want her to feel the peace of God. I want her to feel the spiritual warfare lifting off her shoulders. I want her to feel the restoration of that body and what it's going to be to stand straight again and have all those bones get in alignment and all that pain gone. I want her to experience the spiritual and physical rest that I, as the Lord of life, can bring. I can't think of any greater Sabbath moment than to see this woman leave spiritual warfare and physical pain and enter into the rest of spiritual freedom and physical freedom. I think this was the most restful thing to do, what he's saying. See, he sees it as a spiritual thing, and he's saying, you even recognize that a little bit because you know you need to water your animal. But here we have, notice what he calls her, a daughter of Abraham. 
She's of the family of God. Chosen one of God. Who's in pain. Who's spiritually down. And I've brought her into rest. And you think I'm violating the Sabbath? When you do that in some microcosm sort of way with your animals. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And so what happens? The people rejoice. They got lifted from the law. They are put to shame and they're silent. And you could imagine the next council meeting, the Pharisees' elder meeting. Who picked him? You ruler? I bet you he lost his rulership. <laughs> they elected another ruler. And <laughs> you could imagine what that meeting must have been like. A long one with a lot of angry guys shouting and plotting and thinking about how to kill this guy for the glory of God. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came so that people could enter into the rest of God. His spiritual authority and His physical authority is used to bring people into the rest of God. This is why He has authority over the devil and it's why He has authority over the world. He rescues people. He's restoring people. Not only is He going to do all of that, I mean, the restoration is going to come into full when we start looking in Revelation 21 and all that's going to happen. This is who Jesus is. This is why He came. He came to change lives. He came to change lives. He came to bring rest. So, what does this mean? Let's, let's, let's look at our last point here. What does this mean? Jesus is going to give two parables, one to define the height of the kingdom, the other to define the depth of the kingdom. And, and these two parables are very important. They can seem a little dis, disjointed at first, but I think when you see them in their context, it'll make sense. Let's look at the first parable. He said, therefore. You've got to catch that therefore. And therefore means that this is how he's applying this moment. Everything he said here is connected to this whole event. So he's trying to, to put this event in perspective, and especially the challenge to the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites. He says, and he says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. So now, Jesus starts saying, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, why talk about the kingdom of God? Because, you see, the whole issue here is that Jesus is really in a conflict with these religious leaders. The religious leaders have a definition of what the Messiah is supposed to be and, and what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. They believe that the Messiah was going to come and fall under all of their laws and traditions. And then, to conquer by force the world so that the whole world would be governed by those laws and traditions. So that everybody would follow the morality of them. And so when Jesus comes and violates their laws and traditions, I say their laws and traditions, he didn't violate the scriptures, but all the stuff they added. When he violates it, they don't know what to do because here's a guy who has the power of the Messiah, but he's not coming under the expectations they have. That he's going to come and bring in their morality and their, their, their standards and all that they're going to have and that they would rule the world by force. And so Jesus knows this is the heart of this conflict. So he's just challenging these Pharisees. And now what he's telling them is, listen, I want to explain to you guys the kingdom of God. And he gives two illustrations of it. 
Okay? The first is he, he uses the mustard seed. They would have all known what a mustard seed is. You might not know what a mustard seed is, so I'm going to show you a picture of a mustard seed. should be a picture. There's a, there's, there's a mustard seed. One of those little yellow dots there is the seed. In order to see what the mustard seed is like, you've got to see them in a whole group in your hand so that you can see them call up. But you see how small they are. They're just tiny. little. You could literally fit one underneath your fingernail just to get you perspective how small a mustard seed is. It's tiny. tiny. Even if you bite your nails, you could get one <laughs> underneath there. Okay? It's just that's how tiny it is. Now, the mustard, when you, if you planted one of those seeds, just one, Take one of those little tiny seeds. This is what you'd get. Here's, here's the tree. Boom. Okay. That's a big tree, isn't it? So there's the picture. Now he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is like that. This is what the kingdom of God is like. We take this little itty bitty seed, we put it in the ground, and this really big tree comes out. of it. Now why use that illustration? What's he trying to get at? Well, I think he's challenging several things. The religious leaders are thinking this is coming by force. This is coming by conquering. This is coming by knocking the Romans out. And he's saying, actually, the kingdom of God is going to grow to this massive thing, this huge thing. But actually, it's starting when just this one no-name woman gets healed. This is a seed. This is one little seed. And what's going to grow out of this moment is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is when these little no-name people that obscure fishermen out of nowhere, that no education, these obscure tax collectors who are nothing but robbers and thieves and criminals, these people that, that, that you would never ever think of as having anything to do with the kingdom of God, worthless people in the eyes of society, they're little grains of seed. And when they go into the ground, coming out of this is going to be this massive tree. And then he says, the birds of the air will nest in it. Now, there's all controversy about this birds of the air thing. You study theology, you know about the controversy. I'm going to assume that half of you know about the controversy and half of you don't. So for the half of you to do, I need to address the controversy so that you don't get all anxious and worried that I don't know about the controversy. And for those of you who don't know about the controversy, just hang in there. Okay, hang in there. Here's the controversy about the birds. In the parables of Jesus, these birds are oftentimes uh, illustrations of Satan. Right? The sower goes out and sows seeds. The birds of the air gobble up the seed. And, and then in the explanation, the birds were Satan. And so a lot of people are saying, why is Jesus saying the kingdom of God is going to grow? And then there's birds in there. Because if birds are evil... Is Jesus saying that the, that the kingdom of God is going to grow, but evil is going to be in its midst? That's what some people interpret it. Until the end, when God removes the evil, and then the kingdom of God goes into purity. So realize this, that there's going to be good and bad growing within the kingdom. That's how some people take that. I don't necessarily take it that way. I see that point, and I really don't want to debate you after church on it, and I'm not going to respond to emails on it, because I think it's trivial. But, so that's, that's my response, my email response to you. Yeah, I think it's trivial. But I will tell you what I, I think it's saying. Okay, here's what I think it's saying. I think the birds do represent, in one sense, Gentiles and wicked people. I think the birds are wicked, in one sense. But I think what he's saying is, this kingdom of God is going to advance to the world, and it's going to be calling people from every tribe and nation. And people are going to be coming into this thing that you don't want coming in. 
Because his address is to the Pharisees here. There's people that are going to come and this thing is going to be huge and big and it's going to be bigger than what you want. You see, what you want is an ethnic kingdom of people who hold to your religious traditions. And Jesus is saying, it's not what's going to happen. It's going to be big, all right. And it's going to be pulling in people that you are not going to be comfortable with. And they're going to perch in there. And I think we're talking about how big and high, this wide this is going to be. And it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. So, the common ground on that controversy is we all agree the kingdom of God is going to be big and wide and huge. Whether it is, we're going to contend with evil within there, or whether or not those are Gentiles, we still agree on the, the central theme of the message. It's starting small and it's going huge. Got it? Okay, so there you go. There's the, the controversy. Those of you who don't know about the controversy, thanks for hanging in there. Okay, now we have the second illustration. Okay, here's the second illustration that he gives. The depth of the kingdom. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Again, he's saying, now, I want to explain to you the kingdom of God. It's, it's starting small. And it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. But not only that, just a little bit is going to be powerful. Just a little bit will be powerful. This isn't about kingdoms and armies and wars and and this kind of thing. We're just talking about an uneducated fisherman will be able to permeate and reach a whole nation. It's going to be like leaven. It's going to be like leaven. This little bit will accomplish a lot. Now, what's he saying? I believe that this is chastising the leaders and lifting up the people. The people that are rejoicing are hearing, do you realize something? You have a place in the kingdom of God. You might not be a Pharisee. You might not have been trained. You might be unskilled. You might not even be able to read. You might be just a lady who's been walking around 18 years with a demon on her back and, and, and completely oppressed and have probably no functional skills because for 18 years you haven't been able to work and walk and, and, and who knows how you've been cared for. And yet God, Jesus is saying at this moment, she is a seed. She is a piece of leaven. She is something that will impact the world. He's lifting up the lowly with that statement. And you know what he's doing? Crushing the prideful. What the kingdom of God is about. He's going to crush the prideful and lift up the lowly. So he's saying, guys, this is the kingdom of God. This is the work of the kingdom. Now, let's wrap this up here. What do we have here in this? We've got three things, right? Who is Jesus? Who is he? He's Lord of heaven and earth. Why did he come? To free people from the spiritual and physical bondage of sin. Come on a mission of restoration. What does this mean in the world and for my life? It means that the kingdom of God is going to advance through the simple things of the moment. The kingdom of God is going to advance through the simple things of the moment. And just, I know I'm going a little bit over time, but just I want to illustrate this with one kind of last illustration. When you look at communism in the 20th century and the rise of communism, it was a very powerful thing. It took over nations. Many people that were anti-communist tried to stop communism for for years. 
war against it and fight against it and and armies were raised up and you know conflicts and all kinds of things but historians are now beginning to look at the fall of the USSR and they're asking themselves some questions what was really behind the fall of the USSR how, how did the Soviet Union dissipate and there's lots of answers to that question but some are beginning to look at one particular moment in 1962 as being a key moment in 1962 there was a little book published Smaller book, I've referenced it from the pulpit, I believe, in the past, by a, a man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Many of you might know that name now, but, but uh, in the 60s, no one knew who Alexander Solzhenitsyn was. In 1945, he was a military officer in World War II. He wrote a letter to a friend saying something bad about Stalin, saying Stalin was a bad military leader. Stalin got a hold of the letter and arrested him, threw him into a gulag, and for eight years he was in a gulag. Right? Military leader in World War II, suddenly thrown into the gulag left to die. He finished his eight-year sentence. The communists were still so mad at him, they then put him in exile in Kazakhstan. It's out in the middle of nowhere for years. Now here's a guy who no one knows who's in exile. He gets out of his exile, he writes a little, small, 100-page book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. One little book, 100 pages. And he talks about what it is, what one day in a gulag is like. That's it. Small little book. You can read it in one sitting. What's a day like in a gulag? He writes the book. He buries it in a canning jar in his backyard because he's afraid. He doesn't want anybody in the communist to find it and kill him. In the 1960s, Khrushchev is the premier. He wants to distance himself from Stalin, so he begins to make these anti-Stalinist comments. And Solzhenitsyn says, I wonder if they'd publish my book because Khrushchev is trying to distance himself from Stalin. And uh, this book really trashes Stalin, so maybe I'll, I'll see if it gets published. So he sends it off to a publisher. Publisher gets the book. Publisher said, actually, I heard him in an interview, he said he was actually got, went to bed that night, put on his pajamas, and he was going to read through the manuscript. He said he read the first, line, first paragraph of the book. He said he took his jammies off and put his suit on and went downstairs because he said, I'm reading a masterpiece, and it, it needs to be read in a, in a way that respects the piece. That's what he said. And so he publishes the book. The book rocks the world. And suddenly the pro-communist sentiment began to crumble. And people now today say that was the first axe in the tree of bringing down the Soviet Union. Now, sorry for the history lesson there. You know I like history, so they get long when I do that. But here's the reason why I'm telling you this. This is a physical conversation about the world, about government, about history. One prisoner in a gulag who no one knew was used to help bring down a whole nation where armies couldn't bring him down. That's just an illustration, a parable of the realization that in your life, your day tomorrow might be taking care of a child who might not be talking even yet. And you're spending your day just wiping a bottom 50 times a day, right? And cleaning and organizing and trying to get things done between naps. And it just feels so monotonous. But the kingdom of God is like leaven. And that moment of investment can yield a fruit for the kingdom that you could never imagine. In God's economy, there are no small moments. 
In God's economy, none of you are on the sideline. Why? Because you serve the one who's Lord of heaven and earth. You serve the one who's conquered Satan. You serve the one who's restoring everything. You serve the one who rules the world, and he's in charge of every one of the 10,000 little moments of our life this next week. He's the one who's collecting them all and using them, which means tomorrow, today, every moment of your life, you have a purpose. Everything counts. God is not saying it only counts if you go on the mission field. No, it counts every moment counts. Every moment is a moment to live and breathe the gospel. Everything you do, it all counts. That's the impact of who Jesus is. We serve the one who rules it all. He came to restore people and he's came to use you as a mustard seed, as a piece of leaven have an impact in ways you will never realize. If we can catch that, that's the certainty that drives our life. And that's what I hope that you catch here. Would you bow your head with me? Let's just pray. And let's just pray that we would begin to redeem the moments. That we would begin to start not getting frustrated with the moments of our life and frustrated, but begin to start saying at every small moment of your life, saying, God, I believe this moment can be used for your kingdom. Use it for that. Let it be a mustard seed. Let it be a piece of leaven, uh, 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 some leaven. Let it be that. So let's pray that together. Father, I come before you today. I'm just thrilled because Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. I'm thrilled because not only is he Lord of heaven and earth, come to restore with that authority. Restore people. But this work is not going to happen solely through big moments. It's going to happen in the mundane of life. It's going to happen when a a woman who's been sidelined and in the world's eyes is considered worthless gets healed. It's going to happen in the moment when God, when you use someone who's at home taking care of a child and they just feel like they're just in this cycle of going nowhere and yet you're using them to invest into that child. It's in that monotony of people at work and they feel like they're in a dead-end job and things are just going around and around and around and they're not making an impact and yet they are. God, may we redeem the moments and recognize these are the moments where your kingdom is advancing, where your, your tree of the kingdom is growing and the leaven is fermenting everything around and you with your authority are collecting all these little moments using them in big ways god may we find the the peace and the, the encouragement there may that give us certainty may we order our lives accordingly pray this in christ's name amen